And our text this morning is Romans chapter 8, verses 27 and 28. Let's begin reading for context at verse 18. And let's remember that this is holy ground. This is the word of the Lord. May all who have ears to hear, hear it and rejoice in the truth. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved unto this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray as we ought. But the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Amen. Father, again, we commit this time to You. This is Your Word. We are Your people. And You have called us, Father. You have given us life. Would You... Enable us to hear you this morning. Would you transform us, Lord, to be more like your Son? Father, forgive us our sins. Cleanse us and help us, Lord, now in our minds that you would speak to us and we would hear with obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, if you are uh, just joining us in our series in Romans, we are going through Romans chapter 8 have been for some time now, and we've been in the section starting in verse 18, which you could title, From Suffering to Glory. Uh, We saw um, that really Paul is calibrating the church as he speaks to them with regard to the future. This whole chapter is in particular highlighting the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Blessed Trinity. And Paul is highlighting his work throughout this chapter, but in this section from verses 18 and following, he wants us to look to the future, to the glory that is to be revealed, and that is a reference to the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. When He returns, when He calls all His people to Himself, whether in the grave or still alive at that time, He calls them to Himself to meet with Him in the air, and He glorifies them. He gives them new bodies that are fashioned like His glorious body. It is this event, it is this um, anticipation that He is calling us to meditate on as 
we think about the sufferings of this present time. That is the recurrent theme in this part of the chapter. Yes, the Christian life is marked with suffering. That is by design. But as you think on the glory that is to be revealed, it sets the suffering in its proper perspective, doesn't it? It shows us that all of the sufferings of this present time, not just in our lives personally, but in the life of the church altogether, and not just in this time in which we live, but from the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden all the way to this present time, all of those sufferings are literally as nothing. They have no weight as compared with this great glory which is to be revealed. And so naturally you would expect that we as the sons of God are looking forward to it. And we are. And we actually see that Paul identifies three groans as he calls them in this section. There is first the groan of creation. And we saw that that is a personification of all things that have been created that are uh, non-rational, that are not thinking all the animate and inanimate objects that God has made, all, as it were, come together and stretch on their tippy toes to look forward to this great day because the day of our final deliverance signals the day of creation's deliverance from this bondage of corruption to which it has been subjected, not willingly, it didn't ever want this, but this is a result of the curse of the fall, of the entrance of sin in the world from the time of Adam and Eve. So creation longs to be delivered from this bondage of corruption, this weight that it sits under, the thorns and thistles that it bears, which it was never intended to bear, the bodies of men and women and children who return to the dust, which they were never designed to do. The earth bears that weight and it groans. The second groan we saw is the groan of the sons of God, that we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit in verse 23, even we ourselves groan within ourselves for what? For the same thing, to be delivered finally from the bondage of not the power of sin ruling over us, that's been taken away in Christ, we learn that in chapter 6 but the presence of sin that still dwells in these bodies of flesh that we long to be rid of. We long for that day of deliverance. And then the third groan that we looked at two weeks ago now was the groan of the Holy Spirit. And that was in the context of the particular intercessory work of the Holy Spirit that He does in the hearts of all His children. And that is to pray for the children of God unceasingly to speak with words that cannot or groans that cannot be uttered. This is a language which no human being is able to speak or try to mimic. This is a language that is between the Spirit of God and the hearts of His people communicating with the Godhead directly and effectively. And so we saw that the Spirit also yearns for this day of our deliverance, and He does so in this way, by helping our weakness in prayer. We have many weaknesses because of our sin, but prayer is the particular hallmark that He focuses on. That's where we have our trouble. We don't know how to pray as we ought. And why is that? Well, we may not know the revealed will of God at a particular point 
in our lives, in our Christian walk, and so we may not know what to pray, which is the will of God, what, is the, what, what the will of God is. We also, because of our own sin, may not want to pray the will of God. We may have a particular longing at that point in time that the flesh is lusting after, and so we don't know what to pray because we don't want to pray for what we ought. And then, of course, we talked about the whole hidden will of God that we have no visibility into, nor do we have any right to look into. And so, there's no way that we can pray the will of God with regard to the hidden will of God. So in all of these areas, the Spirit of God is praying for His people. He is interceding for them as a high priest, fervently, effectively, and unceasingly. Today, we're going to look at Paul's, the rest of Paul's thought in verse 27, which really completes uh, this discussion of the ministry of the Spirit in prayer. And, um, and then move on to, I think, just the first part of verse 28, because there's so much there. So look with me at verse 27. Paul says this, Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. He who searches the hearts, who is that? Well, the Lord in the Old Testament to Samuel the prophet, said this in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, Do not look at his appearance or his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Samuel was tasked with anointing uh, the next king of Israel. And he was looking for the son of Jesse, and by the sight of his eyes, he assumed that the proper anointed one was one that looked right to his eye. But the Lord revealed to him, do not look as man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. On the heart. In 1 Chronicles chapter 28, uh, verse 9, we, we looked at this partly this morning, actually in our Sunday school. It's wonderful how the Lord dovetails uh, His Word together. This is David, and he is uh, praying in the temple. He says, as, for, or can, uh, as he's preparing for the building of the temple, as for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. The Lord searches all hearts. The Scripture reaffirms this message again and again. Uh, Psalm 139, 12, Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. The Lord sees what is in the darkness just as clearly as what is exposed in the light, because nothing is hidden from His eye. No creature is hidden from His sight. But all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we all must give account. The Lord sees the heart. In fact, the way that um, uh, Paul puts it here is he says, the Lord searching the hearts. This is an not just an ability that he has, but he is constantly searching the hearts of all men. Jesus, when he entered the synagogue in Luke chapter 6 with the man who had the withered hand, you remember he 
asked that man to stretch his hand out, and he restored it as whole as the other. But it was in the context of the scribes and Pharisees who were watching him closely because it was the Sabbath, and they wanted to see if he would heal on the Sabbath day so that they might have some reason to accuse him. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 7 says, But he knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he arose and stood, and he healed him. But the Lord Jesus knows the thoughts of all people because he is the Lord, he is God. And then if we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9, we read about the mystery of the wisdom of God that we are able to speak that we speak through the agency of the Holy Spirit. Look at uh, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 2. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. So the Holy Spirit also searches all things. Of course He does, because He is fully God. God searches the hearts, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Lord, you can say, is the one who is searching the hearts. And He who searches the hearts, back in Romans 8, knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Paul uses the perfect tense on the word knows, so he's saying he has always known. He has always known what the mind of the Spirit is. In other words, he, he's always known the Spirit's thoughts, His intentions, His purposes. And remember, the context that we're dealing with in Romans 8 here is this is spoken in regard to the Spirit's groanings. His utterances on our behalf as He prays for us. So what Paul is saying is that there is there's no gap in communication between the Holy Spirit of God and the triune Lord who searches all hearts. Why? Because He, the Holy Spirit, makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. That is, He is constantly, actively praying for us and communicating in a stream of communication to the Lord. And the Lord hears Him and approves everything that he prays. Why? Because he prays according to the will of God. And you could say that there's really two senses in which this statement that he prays in accordance with the will of God can be understood. One is that he prays without ceasing. It is the will of God that the Spirit should continually pray for his children. And also, that he prays God's specific will for us. So we talked last time about how when we misform our prayers or we neglect to pray altogether, the Spirit still intercedes in our behalf, taking what we don't pray or what the deepest longings of our hearts are, which we cannot express, and he packages them in the will of God so that God hears them and approves everything that the Spirit prays from within our hearts. And he says, this prayer is for the saints. That's important. He's not saying for the world. 
The Spirit has this ministry for the saints, for the elect, for the loved ones of God. Isn't this the heart of the Lord's prayer in John chapter 17? When He's openly praying to the Father in the hearing of His disciples so that they would know something of this inter-Trinitarian communication that is happening constantly. The Lord Jesus pulls back the veil, so to speak, and He says in John 17, 9, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. You see, in the mind of God, He has His elect, His beloved, His precious. This group of people that the Father has gifted to the Son well before anything was ever created, in eternity. A love gift to the Son that He would rescue them, that He would come to earth, lay down His life as a perfect sacrificial substitute for them to redeem them effectively, and then at the end of time, give them back as a love gift to the Father. It's for this group that the Lord Jesus prays. It's for this group that the Holy Spirit prays, and never for the world. Now, the confusion that we run into is we don't have God's visibility in terms of who the world is of all the wicked and who the righteous are. In God's mind, that is settled. He knows all His elect from eternity. They've all been written in the Lamb's book of life. The world are all those who are not written in the Lamb's book of life and never will be. From our perspective, we don't know that equation. So our command, our task is preach the gospel openly, indiscriminately. Pray that the Lord will bring everyone to repentance and faith in Christ. But this is, we're on holy ground, as I say. This is a view into the mind of God. So this, this text is, is really powerful because it is teaching us a couple of key truths in Romans 8. Don't we see the, the Trinity affirmed here? We see that God the Father, God the Son, as Paul will say in the latter part of Romans 8 coming up, who also stands as a high priest for us, interceding for us from heaven, Christ from heaven, the Holy Spirit from earth within our hearts are constantly praying for us. The Lord God, Father, Son, and Spirit, all hearing those wonderful prayers and answering them. Is it any wonder that the Lord's ear is open to the cries of the righteous? It's the Spirit of God who is undergirding all our prayers, bolstering them, packaging them, and sending them forth in power according to the will of God. There is a perfect harmony and oneness in the mind of God. That's the takeaway here. You see, if God were three different gods, as some claim that He is in the Scripture, there would not be a oneness of mind between them. There would of necessity be uh, arguments from time to time, disagreements from time to time, uh, conflicts, but never so in the Scripture. Because God is one, and yet He is three. <laughs> we can't wrap our minds around that, but we know it's true by the revelation of God. The second thing that's important, I think, from this section that we take away is the truth ensures, this truth ensures our perseverance. That is, that we will ultimately be glorified. Again, this section is about suffering to glory, and what the Spirit does to ensure that every one of us who is in Christ makes it to final glory. Not one will be left behind. Not one will be lost or fall away. And it's because the Spirit is interceding for us continually. 
It's really a whole package, and we've seen this all along in our Roman study. The Father has purposed our redemption, so it's guaranteed already just because of His purpose. The Son has come in obedience to the Father and laid down His life to secure our redemption on the cross at Calvary when He was punished fully for our sins. And He was raised victoriously to show that His work was approved by God. And then the Spirit now has this applicatory work, applicatory work, where He applies the work of the Father in in eternity in His purpose, the Son in His redemptive work at the cross. The Spirit now applies to every heart of His people individually. And He does it and upholds it by constant prayer so that we all persevere to the end. Brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ this morning, your salvation is secure. You need not... Um, labor with a, a heavy conscience that you've not done enough to please God. He is fully satisfied in His Son's work for you. He always will be. That's true when you have bad days and you disobey the Lord. That's true on the good days when you feel like you're obeying well. The Lord is constant and He's just bringing us to an understanding of what He's done so that we would rejoice in Him, that we would give Him thanks and praise and live lives that are to the praise of His glory. So that is all the context leading up to what is arguably one of the most well-known verses in all of Scripture for Christians, and that's Romans 8, 28. And we all probably have memorized that from the time of Sunday school, being young, right? He says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. And I would say that this, like other verses, has been misunderstood. So we want to be clear as to what it means, and we're going to take some time to talk about that this morning. And also for those who do understand it rightly, a lot of times the the context is not understood in which that is written. It's easy to sort of take that verse because it's such an all-encompassing summary verse and just hold it up. But where does it fit in the context of Scripture? And that's important to see as well. This verse is a summary statement of Romans 8 to this point. In fact, I would say that even if you go back to Romans 3, where we start to learn about justification by faith in Christ alone, And then we get to chapter 5, and we hear about the benefits of those who have been justified by faith in Christ, that we have peace with God because He's made peace with us, that we have standing with Him in this grace. We stand firm, and He will never allow us to fall out of that grace, though we do fall because of our sin. Um, A rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. We all look forward to the glory that we're considering, both in what He's going to do in us by transforming us, but especially by the revelation of His Son, the Lord Jesus. To be able to behold Him with our eyes is the, the, the joy and anticipation of all saints. So this verse is really the summary, the climax, or one of the mountain peaks, if you will, of all of the good that the Lord has shown us in our salvation. I, for those who have not been with us in the series, and, and even for those who have been in the series, we've been at this for two and a half years now. It's, it's helpful, I think, to refresh a little bit, at least on what we've been in in Romans chapter 8 so far. So just consider with me 
some of the glory, some of the blessing that God has shown us, the favor He's shown us, who are in Christ. That's the key phrase, remember? He's shown us that the triune God has saved us, that there is a work of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus that has set us free from the governing power of sin and death. God has delivered us, the Spirit has delivered us from the power of sin and death anymore. We no longer are slaves of sin. We no longer have to obey sin as we did before. That is a life-changing, transformative experience because of the Spirit. But it's not just the Spirit. It's, it's God who sent His Son in verse 3 in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin He, Christ, condemns sin in the flesh. Why? That the righteous requirement or that the righteousness of God's law might be filled up in us. That is, that His character might be formed in us more and more so that we walk like Him in newness of life. Walk talks about a pattern. You you now have a new pattern of life if you're in Christ, and it's that of obedience and love for Jesus, love for what is right and hatred for what is evil. He saved us and gave us a new mind, and we see that this is intimately tied with the work of the Spirit indwelling us. He sent His Spirit to dwell in our hearts. That Spirit gives us the very mind of the Spirit and the mind of Christ. He, as the Holy Spirit, has regenerated us from within, right? He has brought our spirits to life, and He's giving life to our mortal bodies now over and against the weight and the pull of uh, sin in our bodies and our flesh. He is giving life to our bodies and He will one day finally glorify us. We have a new obligation now which is to live for God and for righteousness and no longer for the lust of our flesh. And that means that we actively kill the deeds of the body every day, right? We no longer um, want to sin. Yes, we still sin, but when we do we hate it. We are convicted by it. And the desire of our heart is to do what's right. We see in this section also that we are led by the Holy Spirit. And the leading of the Holy Spirit first leads us to a point of humiliation. He brings us low that we might see that we are sinners under the wrath of God and in danger of hellfire for eternity. To see that all our glory, the things that we boasted in before of our goodness and our abilities and our resources are all as garbage, worthless refuse in His sight. And then He brings us up graciously and raises our heads and causes us to look to His salvation as He's revealed it in the Lord Jesus Christ. He leads us by His Spirit. But He doesn't stop there. He also shows us that we are adopted We are now given the status of sons legally in His household, which means we have all the privileges that pertain to sonship. Namely, that we are co-heirs with Christ and we are inheritors fully with Him of the best thing, which is God Himself. And we also see that because we are in union with Christ, all the present sufferings that He brings us into are part of our union with Him. Because Christ... uh, walked a path of suffering, we also walk a path of suffering with Him. But it's a path that leads to glory, and we've already seen His glory and His exaltation. And we too are hoping rightly for the very same thing. 
the Spirit of God has given us His earnest of first fruits. He's deposited Himself within us to know, I am going to redeem you fully at the last day. This is a taste of glory now. The rest is coming soon. And He's given us a hope to persevere through all kinds of trials. And if that were not enough, now we come to the intercessory work of the Spirit and of the Son for us and the constant communication of prayer we've been talking about. Has the Lord not been good to you, brothers and sisters? Amen. And to me. And it's, it's like, if, that's, if that weren't enough, Paul's going to pile one more thing on top here at Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. And we know. Paul is, is saying this is a word of conviction. This is the same word, in fact, that he used to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, where he said, For this reason I also suffer these things, writing from prison. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. This is the same conviction, this knowledge. What comes in verse 28 is a deep conviction of the Apostle Paul, but of Christians in general. And it is to become a deep conviction for all of us if it, not, if it isn't already. This is a conviction that the Spirit of God himself brings us to. And here's what Paul wants us to know about what I'm calling this supreme blessing of Romans 8.28. And there's several things. The first is, here's the scope. It's grand scope. Notice what he says. All things work together for good. That is an unqualified statement. All things. Meaning that which we consider to be good, but also that which we consider to be bad. Maybe those things that are indifferent or neutral, you can't put them in either category. All things work together. That's the Greek word that from which we get the English synergy. It's synergieo in the Greek. And it means to work together or to cooperate together with. And Paul is again, <laughs> he makes it sound like all things have a life of their own, right? That they are cooperating with each other. Well, he's, he's really doing the same thing he's done several times to this point, which is personification. Just as he did in chapter 6 regarding sin, remember sin like a general, like a taskmaster who was over us, like a, an employer who pays wages, those wages being death. He does it with this as well. All things are working together. They are coordinated together. This is what's called the, the concept of divine providence. Providence, we, we probably hear that word a lot. Here's what this word means, and this is a definition I'm going to share with you from Wayne Grudem, who, um, who has this stated in, in his um, systematic theology. He says, The doctrine that God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that He keeps them existing and maintaining the properties which, with which He created them. So He maintains everything He's created. He upholds them. Two is he cooperates or cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. So God works with all those things that he creates and upholds. And three, he directs them to fulfill his purposes. He not only directs them, but he directs them exactly as he 
has determined for his will. That's divine providence, and you could think of it like an orchestra. Have you ever seen a large orchestra, maybe 80 or 100 people, all the different instruments, conductors at the front? That's something of what divine providence is like, except it's not an 80 or 100-person orchestra. It's an infinite number of things that we can't even conceive from thoughts and actions and people and places and different times, all coordinated together with the master director, the Lord Himself, to accomplish His purposes. All things work together for good. The word that Paul uses here for good is the word from which we take the name Agatha. It's not a name you hear a lot for ladies anymore, but it's a wonderful name. It means good. It means inherently good. That which is good in nature, intrinsically good, good in constitution. It's the word which the Lord Jesus uses in Matthew 7 when He says, You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every Agatha, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Trees that are fundamentally good, good in nature, alone are able to make good fruit. Jesus, in speaking to the Pharisees in Matthew 12, said, Brood of vipers, starting in uh, verse 34, I believe. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. That's interesting because he spoke that about the Pharisees who looked really good on the outside. They looked like the holy men in Israel. And yet the Lord Jesus identified them as being a brood of vipers and evil. Why? Because that was their true nature in their hearts. So the fruit of their lives of necessity is evil fruit, deceitful fruit, rotten fruit. It's interesting that Paul uses this word, um, agatha or agathon, when he says all things work together for good, because there is another word in Greek that he could have used, which is the word kalos. Kalos means that which is good in appearance, that which is outwardly good. So Paul is not saying all things work together for what is outwardly good in appearance. That is where one of the distortions has come up on this verse, misunderstanding of the verse. He's not saying all things work together for that which is outwardly good. That is the idea of the prosperity gospel. If you are not healthy and wealthy and everything is going well in terms of your physical life, then you don't have enough faith. No, that is a total aberration and a lie. This is also not a license to sin. Some people, and I would hasten to say that there are people who don't know the Lord, who say, well, if all things work together for good, in other words, if grace just abounds, then why not just sin as much as you want? Grace covers it all. That's that argument of antinomianism that we explored back in Romans 6. That is not an argument that a Christian makes because this person making that argument does not love the Lord. So, Paul is not saying 
all things are good. He's also not saying all things work together for an outcome that always looks good outwardly. What he is saying is that all things work together for what is intrinsically good. All things work together for what is intrinsically good. And what is really good may be packaged in what appears bad. See, it's not hard to understand that all good things work together to promote more good things, right? I mean, if you're a farmer and your ground is fertile and you've got fair weather in your season and you've got plenty of rain, you can expect a good crop. Everything's been good, so it should produce a good result. But what do you do if you are a Habakkuk and you say at the end of your letter in Habakkuk 3, though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, what do you say then? Can you say with him, yet I will rejoice in the Lord? I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. It's the picture of a, like a mountain goat perched up on the, cl- the cleft of the mountain in a precarious position and yet totally firm because of his footing that God has given him. And he will make me walk on my high hills. See, it's sometimes difficult to see how the great conductor can make the suffering, the pain, the grief, the loss work together for what is truly good. That doesn't make sense to our natural minds, to the old mind. But to those who are spiritually minded, and to those who have the gift of faith to believe the Word of God, this is the conviction that Paul has come to and that each of us is coming to and being solidified in. And I, I want to demonstrate this for you in a couple different passages so that we can see and think back on how the Lord has operated as a pattern with His people. Um, it's important to, to realize that as we consider our own Christian lives and those of the, all of us around uh, in the church. So turn, turn with me to Genesis chapter 45. Um, Genesis 45, this is when Joseph has been revealed to his brothers, right? You know the story. They sold him into slavery. He is wrongfully imprisoned, um, but the Lord raises him up, makes him second in the kingdom of Egypt only to Pharaoh and his brothers come to him because there is a famine in the the land of Canaan, and they're forced to seek food. And what has the Lord done with brother Joseph? But he says this in Genesis 45, verse 5, but now, I'm sorry, verse 4, and Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will neither be plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great 
deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Was it a good thing that God sent Joseph to Egypt through a a position of slavery? Hmm. Might have been hard to see at the time. But to see the result that God did that to preserve his people Israel. That he would preserve the the very people through whom the promised seed, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus would come. He brings them into Egypt. Now, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. And this is Moses speaking to the children of Israel after they've wandered the 40 years in the wilderness. They've been brought out of Egypt. The first generation for the most part, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, have all been judged and died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. Moses is now recounting to this next generation God's faithfulness and preparing them for entering the promised land. Moses himself, of course, will not enter. He will pass the baton to Joshua. But we see here in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, Moses says, And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years into the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Now come down to verse Uh, 11, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments, His judgments, and His statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up, that's a reference to pride, And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Notice this, who led you through the great, that great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and that he might test you. Why? to do you good in the end. Did Israel, could Israel say when they were in the wilderness and being led through all of that difficulty, the fiery trials, could they say that this is for our good? All things are working together for our good. Well, what was the Lord leading them Notice how many times he says he led them. He led them through these paths of difficulty. Why? He was driving them to depend on himself. He was stripping away all of their self-reliance and testing them, wasn't he? He he was seeing what the true condition of their hearts were. Yes, there was great good that God was purposing through them because this now is the generation that is going to enter the promised land as a picture, as a type, a symbol of the true promised land of heaven. 
that those who trust the Lord, whose hearts are loyal to Him, who, who trust Him even through the, the trials, the fiery trials, that they will live forever with Him. That's the true good that God purposed through all of that testing. Um, one more example in 1 Samuel chapter 7. 1 Samuel chapter 7. This is now fast forwarding to the time when the Philistines had taken the ark of God and you remember they put it in their temple of Dagon and the Lord humbled Dagon, broke off his everything but his torso and humbled him prostrate before the Lord. The Philistines said, we don't want this box anymore. And so they sent the box all throughout their land. They were all afflicted with these boils or tumors that probably were the result of the bubonic plague. And they finally send the ark back to Israel on a cart pulled by oxen. And when we come to 1 Samuel chapter 7, look at verse 5, or verse 2. So it was that the ark remained in Kirjath-Jerim for a long time. It was there for 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then verse 5, Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, poured it out before the Lord, and they fasted that day and, they, and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that He may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel, but the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. That's in the sight of Israel. Verse 11, and the men of Israel went out of Mizpah, notice this, and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below beth Car. It's so wonderful. Israel goes from a position of being afraid of the Philistines to watching the Lord deliver them right before their very eyes and seeing His deliverance emboldens them to chase their enemies back themselves. And then in verse 12, Samuel takes a stone and he set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. Ebenezer meaning help. God is our help. He has helped us. So I want you to notice in each of these examples that we looked at, it's the Lord who is leading His people into what looks like very troubling, distressing circumstances. In fact, they are distressing circumstances. But the Lord is doing it purposefully, providentially. He is orchestrating all these things ultimately for their good. And it's those and those alone who trust Him, who believe that He is good and that everything He does is right, which is true who see the good that He has purposed for them after He's brought them through all the difficulty because He Himself fights for His people. 
He himself turns the hearts of his people to himself. The same theme is recurrent throughout the entire Old Testament, and I would say throughout the Scripture. When uh, Israel was taken away captive to Babylon, Jeremiah has, has the same thing. He says, he's taken, away, he's taken you away to be captive for your good. And you say, how does that make any sense? Because God is going to turn their hearts back to him and restore them to the land. And he did. He did. So, we see something of this concept that the Lord packages good, often in what appears bad, that we would trust Him. And the question is, who is this supreme blessing intended for? I mean, is this just about ethnic Israel? Is this a promise to the Jews only? Come back to Romans chapter 8. Paul answers that in Romans 8, 28. He says, and all things We know that all things work together for good. And here are the recipients. To those who love God. To those who love God. In fact, in the Greek, the way he puts it is, and we have known that to those loving God, in other words, as the pattern of their lives, all things work together for good. He puts it up front because he's trying to tell us it's to these people and these only that the supreme blessing is given. All things work together is an unqualified statement. But to those who love God is very qualified, isn't it? Well, what does that mean? Well, how do we know that we love God is the question. Well, the Lord in the Ten Commandments made a distinction between only two types of people. And you hear it in the second commandment where he says this in Exodus 20, starting in verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Those are the two groups of people in God's mind. Those who hate him and those who love him. There's only two. If you don't love him, you hate him. And how do you know if you love him? You keep his commandments. You keep his commandments. John the Apostle said this in his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 23, and this is his commandment. Do you want to hear the supreme commandment of God? That we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Isn't that the great command? That you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. And... The second is like the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The Lord himself, Jesus, clarified that on several occasions. John is just saying the same thing in this way. If you love the Lord, you love and believe Jesus Christ, the Son. And you love one another. You love the brethren. And this love he's speaking about is not just a love of emotion or feeling. This is the agape love of God, which is a sacrificial love of God. You say, how do you know that? Because this sacrificial love of God was demonstrated for us 
Paul says in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, while we were still enemies of God and had no regard for Him and His glory, we were only living for ourselves and our personal kingdoms. God in Christ did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He died in our place and substitutionarily He took our sins away from us. He he drew them away from us and instead He gave us His own righteousness so that when God looks at you, He now sees the perfection of Jesus, that life that He lived in perfect obedience, He looks at and sees on every one of you. That's the wonderful news of the gospel. So do you love God? Do you obey His commandments? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? And are you loving the brethren? Those are simple tests to know if you are loving God. You hate evil. You who love the Lord hate evil. Actually, John says it perfectly in 1 John 4, 19. We love Him because He first, what? Loved us. That's the reason we love Him. No one is a lover of God because of sin. We're all lovers of self. We're self-worshippers. But if you do love God, it's because He first set His love upon you. In fact, the way Paul put it in Romans 5 is in verse 5. The hope, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. If you love God, it's because God first loved you and He actually poured out His own love in your heart by the Holy Spirit so that now you are enabled to love Him back and to love the brethren with His love. That's the wonderful truth of the recipients of this supreme blessing. They are those who are loved by God and in return love God. You see, he's not saying that it's our love for God that conditions his blessing upon us. Because if that were the case, what happens, brothers and sisters, when you're cold in your faith toward him? Does all of a sudden everything stop working together for good for you because you no longer love him in that moment? No. (laughs) Thank God for that truth. His love is constant, even when ours is not. And He's helping us to be more constant, right? To to love Him more, to love Him and desire to obey Him completely. That's all the work of the Spirit in our hearts. So the truth of this text is, I hope we're seeing all things work together for what is really good to those who love God. And yes, that's true of all of us individually. But this text is so much larger in its view, in its panorama than that explanation gives. We need to expand this concept like concentric circles in our spiritual thinking. What he's saying is all things work together for good to the beloved of God. Who is the beloved of God? Singular. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. All things work together ultimately for the good of Jesus Christ. Now, come back to Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation any longer for those who are in Christ. So if you are in Christ, and that's the church. That's the church in the Old Testament, if you will, those who are looking forward to Messiah but who hadn't been revealed yet. That's all the saints in the New Testament church looking back to Messiah who has been revealed. 
to the church because she is in Christ in union with Him. All things work together for good. God is orchestrating every thought, every action, every life. Everything is for the benefit of His beloved for Christ and the church. That should be a staggering thought to all of us. Everything that happens in this world, not just here where we are in our present circumstances, but throughout the world is all being orchestrated for the benefit of one group of people and one only. And that is the church of Jesus Christ. Do you see how precious she is to Him? And that real benefit, that real good that Paul is speaking about, that we would know, Paul's going to tell us in the next verse. We're not going to have time to go through it today, obviously, but he identifies it in verse 29 when he says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be, that's, that the Son might be the firstborn among many brethren. The ultimate good is that all of us are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's the context in which God is orchestrating everything for your benefit, to make you like Jesus. And if you know that He walked a path of suffering and shame, should it be any surprise to us if we encounter fiery trials, brethren? You see, we, we are destined to walk His path because it's a path that results in glory. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. Isaiah 43, verse 2. Isn't that the sense of the lyrics we sang? When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. His pathway is through the deep waters. His pathway is through the fiery trial through the wilderness which is laden with serpents and dangers, scorpions of every kind. Spiritually, brothers and sisters, that is the wilderness that we have been brought into because we've been brought out of spiritual Egypt where we were in bondage to sin and to master sin who is typified by Pharaoh. We are now wandering through the wilderness together where the path is strewn with danger and yet He is with us. And because of that, you will endure and make it into the land of Canaan. The true Joshua will take you in. Give him the glory and the praise. Brothers and sisters, this is such an immense truth that all things are working together for our good. We have seen that the Trinity is engaged for us in our salvation, in our every part of it, our justification, our sanctification, and our future glorification. God is engaged for us. In fact, Paul is going to say so coming up. If God is for you, who can be against you? It's a rhetorical question. Nobody. The Trinity is for us. He's also put angels at our disposal. He's made them ministers for our benefit. Hebrews 1.14, all the angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. David, in Psalm 57, he talks about the reproaches that the Lord will have, meaning that God will put to shame all of the enemies of His people. So even wicked people, the, the, those who hate the Lord, 
those who hate us, the Lord will put them to shame ultimately if they do not repent and turn to Christ. Hebrews 12 describes our chastening, that God chastens us as a loving father. He disciplines us. He corrects us so that we might, might be partakers of his holiness. Is that a good thing? Very good. In fact, it's essential because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So even our corrections, um, they're all designed by the great orchestra master to make us like his son. So this is really the panoramic view that Paul is giving to us. And I want you to just let a couple of texts wash over you as we close this morning. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 21, Paul says, Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. You know the reason all things belong to you? Because you're in Christ and Christ is the owner of everything. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15, this was our call to worship, for all things are for your sakes. Do you believe that? All things are for your sakes. Why? That grace, this grace of all things working together for the good of his people, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. The, the reason he's doing all this is so that you would be a thankful person, that the church would exude thanksgiving to him and praise him and worship him properly for what he has done because he is worthy. What a great verse as we prepare for our Thanksgiving time together, right? That thanks should abound in all of us to the glory of God. If you can thank him, brothers and sisters, in the sufferings, you are truly blessed. Um, it's easy to thank him when everything is going well, right? Nominal Christians, people who are Christians in name only, but who are not actually regenerated and born again, they are able to give thanks to the Lord when everything is going well. But when things do not go well, they don't give glory to God when they suffer loss. That's a distinguishing mark for the Christian, for the true believer. They give thanks to God when things are good, but they also are enabled, enabled to give thanks to God when things are hard and bad, painful. That doesn't mean that we do it every time perfectly. We're sinners. But God brings us back to this truth. All things work together for good to those who love Him. That's the conviction. And we are reoriented in our thinking and we say, yes, Lord, that's right. Forgive me. Help me to give you thanks even in this difficult trial because I trust that you will bring good out of it. I don't know how, but I know that you will. You've shown yourself faithful in history. You've shown yourself faithful in the lives of these brothers and sisters. You will do the same in my life. Do you believe that this morning, my friends? That's really the question, right? Are these just ideas we're talking about, concepts to understand so that we could say, I, I, I get Romans 8.28 now? Or is it actually something that's gripped to you? in your heart. Ultimately, there are no tragedies for the Christian. No tragedies. Any tragedy or loss now all turns to blessing later. That's not the case for those who don't love God. 
for those who don't love God, all things are not working together for good for them. They are in a very precarious, dangerous situation. If they reject, or if you reject, God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you prove that you don't love God, and His wrath is still abiding on you. If that's the case, repent. Wake up and realize that the way you've been thinking is folly, it's sin, it's wrong, it's missed the mark of what God has said is true. Turn away from that way of thinking and humble yourself before the Lord, and He will lift you up. What is tragedy in this life for the believer turns to eternal blessing because God works all things for good for those who love Him. May that be our focus. May that be our prayer. And may that be the conviction we all have as we live for His glory. Let's pray.